0: you're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org.
1: The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering trunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The 200 proof strength of the gospel in Romans.
0: Good morning, church family. Good to see you guys. Those of you guys that haven't met, my name is Rick, and my role here at Gospel Community Church is to preach and teach God's Word, a job I'm thankful for. And so if we've not met, I would invite you to come up after service today and take some time to introduce yourself. I would love to meet you. So today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5. So if you'll turn uh, turn there with me, Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11. I'm going to say this up front. I'll likely get emotional today as we're sharing an aspect of our story that hasn't been shared publicly uh, in a while. And so just know that that's likely going to happen. So I'm not going to apologize for that, but I will say this, that it's a lose-lose if you make fun of me for crying, because that makes you a bully, number one. Number two, when you get beat up by the crybaby, (laughs) you lose twice. So just laying that out there for you guys, keep that in mind. So here's our main point today. We rejoice in our past, present, and future hope. We rejoice in our past, present, and future hope. We're going to look at today that the gospel is a full tense gospel. And so I I don't want you leaving here today not understanding what I mean by the gospel. So I hope if there's one thing that's clear, it's explicitly clear what the gospel is. The gospel can also be translated good news. And it is the very message that Christians stand upon it's not the ticket that just gets us in the door and then it's all up to us. We're going to see today that the gospel, the good news, is the very thing that brought us in, that keeps us in, and that will keep us in for all eternity. That's the good news. That's what we want you guys to understand. I'll say this as well. Everyone in this room shares this in common. Either you have suffered, you are suffering, or you will suffer. That's just a reality. That's a reality for every single person in this room. Either you have, you are, or you are going to suffer at some point in this life. That's the result of living in a fallen world. And what I mean by a fallen world is this, is that the Christian message and the word of God has a response to evil and suffering. It's not just that it's indifferent. It's not just that it's just random chance just happening. What it is, is there's fallenness. There's, or I'll say it this way is there's evil and suffering in the world because of sin. You see, when man rebelled against God and against the way that God ordered life to be, what happened was the fall. Sin entered creation. And now we suffer as humans under that curse of sin, but also all of creation suffers under it as well. And so we can explain, hey, there's a reason why there's evil and suffering in our world, and it's because of sin. This is helpful for this reason. I want to make sure that we also have at least a good understanding of what suffering is. Because sometimes we can confuse suffering or people can confuse suffering with karma. I don't believe in karma. And so what karma would be is, hey, Five years ago, I stuck out my foot and tripped someone on a plane, and now I have a bunion or an ingrown toenail because God has punished me for that evil act I did. That would be an act of karma. The thing that I did has a direct result, maybe one day, two days, five days, five years later, for something evil that I did. So I'm going to reject that. Also, in a world where everyone is so offended today by everything, we need to also understand this, that differing opinions is also not what I'm talking about. I believe what the text is talking about when we refer to suffering. So just as an example, I was texting someone yesterday and I said, hey, do you guys happen to have an extra bag? It was actually Nick who plays drums sometimes. Do you guys have an extra bag? I'm getting ready to travel this week. Extra carry on. He goes, yep. I know you've mentioned you know, something along the lines like from the pulpit before that you don't like cats. We have cats. Are you allergic to them? And I said, just emotionally. Okay. So some people go, whoa. He doesn't like cats. I suffer because you said you don't like cats. That's a direct attack on me. And so I kind of want to squash that, okay? Like if you, if I like dogs. If you have a pug, I don't like pugs. That doesn't mean I don't like you and that I think you're a horrible person because you bought a pug. (laughs) I just don't like them. And so sometimes when we say, like I've said, I like country music, you guys are like, I don't like country music. I don't go, wow, I'm suffering because we have a difference of opinion, okay? So let's try as best as we can to understand that sometimes in our heightened culture of everything is personal and everything offends us, that we need to have an understanding of what suffering is. So when I'm talking to suffering, let me mention some things that I think we can relate to. Losing a loved one, losing anything, including an animal. Difficulty around parenting, infancy, sleepless nights. Hear me in this. Difficulty because you long for an infant and a sleepless night. Illnesses, divorce, divorce. Financial hardships, rejection, cruelty of words, never a more stupid saying than sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, because they do. Abuse in any way, going through an affair, single parenthood, blended homes, homelessness, joblessness, and just bodies that are aging. All things that we can say we either have gone through, we are going through, or at some point we will go through. And what I'm going to say is that we can rejoice in our past, present, and future hope. Let's read God's word. Romans 5, starting in verse 1, says this. Therefore, therefore is therefore a reason. It's a conjunction tying what was previously said by the Apostle Paul. He says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die For your word. Thank you that you are in control of everything in this life. There's not some rogue particle that exists. There's not some incident, some circumstance that you are unaware or removed from. We praise you that we serve a God that is so deeply connected to everything that goes on in this world and also serve a God that didn't remain absent, but stepped in. Jesus, you know, suffering, you know, loss, you know, hurt, you know, pain. You know rejection, you know abandonment, you know all those things and know them all too well because you are the God who came and stepped in to rescue and to save. This morning, I pray that you would bring healing through your word, healing through the gospel, healing through the good news, that you would minister to every man and woman in this room, but also make us ministering agents to others that are going through suffering, pain, and loss. Speak to us through your spirit today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We rejoice in our past, present, and future hope. Let me explain this. There's a massive misunderstanding between what Christians preach and teach and oftentimes what people might think that we preach and teach. And here's what I mean. What we preach is good news, not good advice. You see, recently we, we had the ice storm and everyone was aware of ice storm and the loss of power. And so here's what happens. Whenever a storm like that hits, we are told, hey, there's really bad news. There's a storm. The storm's coming. Either you have lost power or you might lose power. And then when you lose power, what we need at that point is good advice. And the good advice is, hey, maybe go buy a generator. Have you thought about getting a chainsaw and going out and helping some of the teams out? Because maybe you can speed the process up. Have you thought about maybe going and taking coffee to some of the guys cutting down trees and stuff like that? That's, those are all things that you can do as a result of the bad news. That's called good advice. What Christianity has is good news. You see, advice is something you need to do something about. News is something that you receive and rest and rejoice in. You see, advice says go and do this. Good news says this is done. In the same way, if the power company calls and says, hey, just so you know, power's been restored, what do you do? Ah, Flip on the lights, no longer see your breath, kick back, and enjoy the message of that good no- news. There's nothing for you to do that's reactionary. It's something they're telling you that's been done. They fixed the problem. They fixed the power lines. Now your electricity works. Now you get to enjoy it in the same way. God knows our greatest problem. It's our separation from him as a result of our sin. He steps in. He fixes that ultimate problem to the person and work of his son that is a message that is proclaimed, that is heralded. That's called good news. And it's not something we do something about. It's something that's been done that we receive and rest in. It's important that we understand that. And here's why. We have a past, present, and future gospel. We have a past, present, future good news. We have a full tense gospel. We can see this in the text. Look with me, starting again in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justification means this. It's just as if you had never sinned before a holy God, and just as if, so look at the word justified, just as if had I had lived a perfect, righteous, and holy life. So when you are justified by God, you are literally legally declared righteous in his sight. That means that the full, sinless life and obedient life of Christ is given to you, and your sinful life is given to Christ. So when it says that we're justified and we're justified by faith, it is confidence in what Christ has done. That's where it starts off. Therefore, since you have been, past tense, justified by faith, look, present tense, we have currently peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we have peace with God? Through our obedience, through the things that we do, no, we have peace with God currently through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been justified past tense. We currently have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means this, you are not at war with God, but ultimately God is not at war with you. When you are justified, when you are made righteous in Christ, God is not at war with you. You have this objective reality that you are at peace with God, which means God will never be at war with you because your, justif- uh, your justification is a once and for all time justification. And here's what I believed early on. And maybe some of you have believed this Christ got me in God's grace brought me in, but now it's up to me how I maintain his love and his acceptance and his approval. You all, you guys should have seen me as a new Christian. I took communion by myself in my room every day. I have drastically different views on what communion is now, but I did that had my own crackers and juice right there. Little refrigerator by my bed. I'm not kidding. I'm dead serious. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I would have been the most judgmental person you maybe had ever met because I'm like, I guarantee your Bible reading plan does not look like mine. I'm like, one year? It's going to take you one year to get to the Bible? That's pathetic. Oh, I was self-righteous to the core because I believed. Thank you, Jesus, for getting me in. Now it's up to me. And sadly, I think a lot of people believe like that. Look here, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace presently with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained, look at this, access by faith faith into this grace in which we stand presently. The very grace that brought you in is the very grace that is sustaining you. Think about this. I've had debates with uh, other friends that are pastors on do we preach the gospel every week? Do we preach the message of good news? And some will say no, but I will if non-Christians are there. Here's the problem with that. The gospel isn't just your way in. The good news isn't just your way in. The gospel is the very thing that brought you in, that keeps you in, and that will keep you in. It's the very thing that grows us as Christians. It's not the gospel gets you in and now it's up to your spiritual disciplines. It's the gospel got you, keeps you, and will sustain you. So it's not just for the non-Christian, it is for the Christian. How do I know that? Go back to Romans 1.15 and look at how Paul starts us off. We have a verse for you. Romans 1.15. Who is Paul writing to? The church in Rome. And Paul, Paul hasn't been there, but he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why would Paul be so eager to come and preach the gospel to Christians? Because Christians need the gospel of grace. Paul's like, I'm excited to come so I can share with you guys what? The next steps for what you need? No, you always need the gospel. And he's like, that's what I'm pumped to come and share with you guys. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2, at the very end of this letter where Paul has drenched it in the gospel, he says this, now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are presently being saved whoa, I'm going to remind you at the end of the letter of the gospel that has saved you and that is presently saving you. Christians, the message of the gospel of grace is as much for the non-Christian as it is for the Christian. We have a past, present, and future hope. A past, present, and future hope. It's the grace in which we stand. There's no such thing as a grace graduate. As a Christian, you don't grow out of your need for grace. You grow in your understanding of how desperately you need it. And then he says this in verse 2, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God future. We've been justified. We have peace with God. We stand in grace, and we rejoice in the hope that one day we're going to be with him, that one day we're going to be fully restored, that we are going to be with him here on this earth without sin, without suffering, that the same gospel that brought us in is the one that's keeping us in. It's the same one that's going to sustain us. In other words, I'm not latching on to God. God has held me and he will continue to hold and sustain me all the way through. What in the world is the question that some scholars have? Why did Paul mention this now? He says this and then he ties into suffering. Why, 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 Why would he do that? Why say that we have this past, present, and future hope and then go to suffering? Here's why. Suffering is the one thing that will tell you what you truly believe about God. Let me say it again suffering is the one thing that will really tell you what you believe about God. The storms of this life will tell you what you're rooted in and how deep those roots actually are. You see, in Ephesians 3, Paul prays for the local church there in Ephesus and says, I pray that you will be rooted in the love of Christ. How will you know what kind of roots a church has? You won't until a storm comes. And here is the problem. What we can tend to see as Christians is great. God brought me this relationship. I'm on good terms with him. I'm accepted in his eyes. I stand in this grace. Now I'm, I'm expecting that there should be smooth sailing. No, our Bibles promise nothing of the sort. Look at the apostles' life. Many just brutally martyred for faithfully following Jesus. In fact, the word of God promises that in this life, we will have suffering. Take heart, Jesus says. I've overcome this world. So the reason why it's so important for us to understand how we have a right standing with God and then how this past, present, and future hope is something we can rejoice in that impacts our suffering is because when suffering comes, we will either see it as God's punishment for us or we will see it as God's means to purify us. We will either see it as, as a time to get frustrated with God. God, why are you doing this? I've been reading my Bible, going to church, doing all the right things. Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? You laid down all of your works before God and said, this is why you should have been loving me the whole time. Or you'll be in utter despair. How do I make sense of this? What, what did I do wrong? How could I have been better? And instead, if we look at our past hope that we have in Christ, that same present hope that we have in him, and the same future hope that we're going to have. And whenever storms in this life come, we understand this, that the same God who took care of your salvation, your greatest need, in all of your uh, human existence, is the same God who's in control of the storms that are presently in your life right now, as a means to purify, but not as a means to punish. I've shared this story many times, but there's a story of a man named Horatio Spafford, and, and some of you are familiar with this, some of you aren't familiar with this. He wrote one of my favorite hymns. It's titled, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio was a businessman and he lost all of his he lost all of his property in the Chicago fires. Not just that, Horatio sent his wife and his four daughters on a ship, took over to one of D.L. Moody's conferences. On the way to that conference, the ship sunk. All four of his daughters drowned. Before that, he had lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever, a man who had suffered great loss. It's said that when he went out to sea, his wife did survive. When he went out to sea, it's when he wrote the lyrics from his, the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And the lyrics read like this. My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. In the midst of suffering, where does Horatio go? Past, to the cross, to say, I know that whatever I'm going through right now in this life cannot be the punishment of God. Because my sin, oh, the glorious thought, not of my sin, but as the whole, it was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I'm not being punished. Horatio is not the only one. Look at John Owen, English Puritan, lost all 11 of his children in his life and his wife of 31 years, has written some of the most rich theological books, Communion with God, Mortification of Sin, a brilliant man who knows suffering so well. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, suffered from Bright's disease, rheumatism. His wife was bedridden for years and years, suffered with great depression, and is a man who says that he is thankful and that the greatest gift that God can sometimes give ministers is the affliction that he graciously allows in their life. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer suffered greatly as well from depression. We stand in the, in a lineage of people who know what suffering feels like. And the great hope that we have in con, uh, that, that, that we share with all of them is that we have this past present and future hope that is in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul goes into this and says, starting here, not only that in verse three, but we rejoice in our sufferings. He doesn't say we rejoice for our sufferings. He says, we rejoice, look here, in our sufferings. It would be masochism to rejoice for our sufferings as though we need some sort of suffering to punish us. Now he says, I rejoice in my sufferings because he knows something. What does he know? He knows that it produces endurance and that that endurance produces character and that character produces hope and that hope will not put us to shame. You see, our past, present, and future hope of our justification, our peace with God, the grace in which we stand impacts how we view suffering. Think about it. Christianity is the one place that can make sense of suffering. The one place. If you're an atheist, we thank you for being here. But when you look at suffering, you have to say that it's just blind indifference, that there is no reason for it at all. It's just what happens in a world. When you look at Christianity and you look at the pinnacle of Christianity, you have the only truly innocent man to never do any harm, to love God and love people perfectly, who's dying a vile criminal's death on a cross. And God's saying, yes, the most evil and atrocious act in all of human history where a truly innocent man dies. I'm using that to bring about salvation for all of humanity because I'm the God that can bring beauty from ashes. I'm the God who can show you that the most uh, gross and vile human act that's ever happened is something that I can use to redeem humanity. It produces something which we can count on. I've shared before one of the nightmares that I have, is to share our story, is the nightmare of one of my kids screaming out to me and me trying everything I can in my dreams to get to them, but I can't. In 2020, God brought a little boy into our lives. His name was Rowan. Rowan came to us and he was two years old and DHS dropped him off with not a lot. He had this goofy, ugly little bear. We brought him in and within the first two hours, Rowan called me dad. I didn't ask him to do that. He was just confused. I think we're his third transition that he's made at this point of his life. Seven months go by. Rowan is a part of our family. It looks like he's going to continue to be that until the state comes in and says that it's time to remove him and move him somewhere else. A place he had already been at that point. And so it was something that was extremely difficult for me. For the first time in my life, my nightmare became a reality. When we dropped him off, I literally had him reaching out and screaming. And all we could do was drive away. Could not rescue him. I, I turned cold, church. Just felt dead in that moment. My wife would agree, feeling the same thing. It's probably the hardest day of my life. It, loss of close friends, loss of a father. It was difficult, to say the least. The comfort that I had is this that it's not like something audible hit me, but I remember I was walking, talking with God, and I was sharing my anger. God and I have a very good prayer life now, I would say my prayer life's grown. Let me phrase it like that, is that our God too knows what it's like to have a son crying out to him in the darkest moment of his life. But because Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he heard was silence that I never have to endure suffering or face silence from that God again. Because his son wasn't rescued in the darkest moment of his life, I can be comforted and rescued by Christ in the darkest moment of my life. The great hope that I have in any suffering that I face is the same God who provided the greatest rescue through the cross that I ultimately needed is the same God who sustains me in what I go through in life today. And here's the thing. This is is factual for me, that I know that God grows us in endurance because I learned literally for the next nine months, I prayed almost every day. I'm trying to remember if there's a day that went by that I didn't pray, that God would bring him back to our home. So I learned endurance. I learned patience. I learned stamina that I am not good at patience at all. And God taught me how to pray and pray faithfully. Nine months later, we got the call that Rowan was going to be coming back to our house. And as of the end of May last year, Judge signed a document that he is legally our son and nothing can change that. So the meaning of justification took on a much richer and much bigger term that when when someone is declared a son or daughter, it's unchangeable, especially when that someone is God. God taught me endurance. That's a promise that that he will do that in all of us. But what he also does is he produces character. And here's what I mean. One of the biggest struggles that we have with suffering is that as Westerners, we hate discomfort. We hate discomfort, and so at all costs, we will do anything to get rid of any sort of discomfort in our lives. In fact, it's it's known that we consume 80% of the world's opiates. Do we have a pain problem? I think that we have a discomfort problem, that anytime there's any discomfort in our life, the greatest thing that we need to do is figure out a way to get rid of the discomfort. Where does it come from? I would say this. We have a comfort idolatry, that we are people that worship comfort, what are signs and symptoms that maybe you worship comfort? Boredom. If you are someone who is bored and constantly bored, and boredom seems like the worst thing ever, then you are enslaved to trying to escape boredom. If you are someone who worships comfort, you worship privacy, you avoid stress at all costs. Deeper community, uh-uh, that's not happening. That would make you uncomfortable. Discipleship? I will disciple someone once I feel comfortable doing it, which means once I know everything, which means that you don't go actively engage in discipleship because your trust isn't in the gospel and in the spirit. It's in how much you know, and you won't do it because you're not comfortable enough with how much you know. Codependency. I've said something new, you, Maybe you're hurt. I don't like the awkwardness in the room, and so I can't live with this and stuff, so I need to fix you to fix me because I'm uncomfortable. Some of us find comfort in our bank accounts. Some of us find comfort so much in people's approval that we won't share difficult things with them because we love to be comfortable more than we love for that other person to know that the thing in their life could actually be killing them. We love comfort. And what happens in the midst of suffering is God produces endurance, patience, but he also, what he starts to do is prune and purify. And he takes those things that are false comforts and false hopes. And he starts to remove them. Say they weren't actually a hope in the first place. And that process can be painful, and that process can be difficult, but it's a part of God's process in developing greater character. The, the process is that through the suffering in this world, we can trust that we will grow in endurance, that we will grow in character. In other words, God is going to make us more Christ-like through whatever is going on in our life. We can trust his word because he says that. And then it says "This hope is not going to put us to shame. So it circles back to hope where, where he started. Why? Why will the hope not put us to shame? Look here, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Hope will not put us to shame. What I struggle with week after week, day after day as a pastor is to believe in God's love. That I believe that somehow God's love is like a thermostat. That I can control it. I can make it turn up and I can make it turn down based upon what I do or don't do. There's times where I engage and times where I disengage. And a lot of that is because of my false belief or lack of belief in resting in God's love. God's love is a one-directional, one-way love, meaning it's not a two-way street. It's not contingent upon us and what we do and don't do. It is secured for us in Christ. One-directional, one love. It says here, hope does not put us to shame because God's love. It's not our love for God. It's God's love for us that has been poured into our hearts. We will be insecure and fickle if we're resting and trusting in our love for God. It's God's love for us. That's why hope will not put us to shame. Through whatever we're going through in life, we can trust that a loving Father would allow it to happen for the purpose of growing us in endurance, producing character in us, removing idols in our lives, and giving us a greater hope. A greater hope in what? In the fact that we are unconditionally rooted and loved by God with an unshakable love. A greater hope in the fact that we have this security in what Christ has done in the past, what Christ is doing in the present, what Christ will do in the future. We have a past, present, and future hope. What we will have is greater hope, those roots will grow deeper. And when a storm comes in our life, we'll understand that it's for purification, not punishment, and the tree will not topple over. Let's keep cruising. Verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. Look here, past, present, future again. Okay, here's our assurance That we have this past, present, and future hope. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while, past tense, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now, presently, been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath to come. Did you guys catch that? Past, present, and future. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, past tense, we were reconciled to God, present tense, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved, future tense, by his life. More than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him who we have now received reconciliation. We have this assurance. When I need to know in my life whether God loves me or not, I look back to the cross to say God shows that he can bring beauty out of the most difficult things. I look back to that to be reminded that I'm not being punished. I look back to that to say, I'm also not defined by the suffering in my life. I'm defined by the suffering that Christ endured for me on the cross. We have a King that lived a perfect life and that suffered on the cross for us. Christians, please, please, please hear this. Sometimes we'll ask, Hey, what is your assurance for salvation? And sometimes people are like, well, there's this one time I, uh, I carved my name in a tree. I changed my Facebook status. I wrote down something in my journal about the day. If you want assurance for your salvation, we don't look back to the time we walked down the aisle. We don't look back to the time that we signed a journal. We don't look back to the time that we carved our name in a tree. We look back to the tree 2,000 years ago and say, that's the assurance of my hope for salvation, period. That's it. What kind of hope? This, that we were enemies of God. Romans 8 goes on to say that we're hostile in our thinking, not able to obey God's law. Maybe you don't think of yourself as God's enemy, but let me share with you this. God's word calls us an enemy. That is positionally before God, before Christ saves us. We're enemies, hostile in our thinking, against Him. which means this, and this might be hard for you to hear. We don't just need a small saving from a small savior that is puny. We need a massive saving from a massive savior. We need to be saved by God's righteous holy, good wrath. What we need to be is saved from God and saved to God. And only Christ can do that. Paul's whole emphasis in verse 6 through 11 can be just this. Hey, remember what I said in the first two verses, our past, present, future hope? I want to assure you this, that in your your worst moment of life, when you were ungodly, when you were sinners when you were enemies of God, he's using all this strong language, when when at that moment in your life, if God committed himself to you to save you, to reconcile you, to bring you into his family, to do all the work that needed to be done, at your worst moment, God commits himself to you, saves you, and rescues you, how much more now that you're his child, infinitely loved by him and his friend, will he stay committed to you? If he was going to walk out, he would have done it on the cross. He stayed there, and he'll stay now. And he will, through the midst of the suffering in your life, be faithful to you and be faithful to produce what he says he'll produce Endurance and character. He will purify you. He will increase your hope. Your hope in what? That you were saved. That you are saved and that you will be saved and those roots will grow deep. So then when suffering comes in your life, you will know how to, as you grow in maturity, handle the suffering that's there. You will not run. Instead, you will stay and go, Lord, Even a Spurgeon prayed, I will trust that you turn up the furnace as hot as it needs because the furnace is only going to purify me. I will trust that you will do that and you are definitely not punishing me. Christian, if you're someone in here today that has this problem of looking past to yesterday and to last week and you're suffering from the guilt of your sin, stop wallowing in your past. Start wallowing in the past of Christ. Start wallowing in the life that he lived in perfect obedience. Start wallowing in the fact that he hung in your place to rescue you. Start wallowing in his victory over your sin in your life for you. I'm going to ask you to do something uncomfortable just so we can practice. If you are someone who in the past year or two has endured some sort of suffering in your life, please stand up. Some of you guys are pondering. It's fine. Just look around. Now, I'm going to ask this question. If you reached out to someone to help you through the pain and trial of your life during that time, please remain standing. In other words, during your suffering, you reached out and said, I'm suffering, please help me. Please remain standing. Good, you guys can all have a seat. Here's why. Galatians 6 calls us to bear one another's burdens. In other words, we don't suffer alone. Sometimes Christians... We're too prideful in the midst of our suffering and we think that we can endure it ourselves and we can go through it ourselves. And God provides a family so that we don't have to suffer alone. And you oftentimes don't give people a chance to be faithful to scripture. How can someone bear your burden if they're not given that opportunity to bear your burden? And so my, 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 I was actually really encouraged to see that. And here's the thing. If I go back through and read this text, I would want you to uh, do this later. Go back and read this text tonight, after service, tomorrow morning, and and look for this. Look at the language here. Since we have been justified, we have peace with God, through him, we, our, our, there is no just individualistic you in this passage. In other words, we're not people who have to suffer alone. Christ purchased our salvation and our way into God's family so that we have brothers and sisters in Christ to suffer with. My encouragement to you is if you're someone who tends to be a silent sufferer, here's my one thing. Reach out to brothers and sisters in Christ that God has provided for you and allow them to bear your burden and suffer with you. Next, get into community. You're like, oh, man, I don't, just the whole thing about it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, that's the point. (laughs) Practice getting uncomfortable and trust what God does with that. We need deeper community. Christ purchased for us to be in community In other words, we can't just kind of come and sit and and keep at a distance. Why? Because if everyone does that, no one will be caring for the people that are suffering. We will just be nice attenders that come in and say, I want to keep a safe distance here, keep everything nice and comfortable, when we're called to suffer and bear one another's burdens together. Last, I'll say this. We rejoice in our past, present, and future hope. How do we rejoice? We sing. MRIs have actually shown that while we sing, this is not for me, I'm not smart enough to figure this out, MRIs have shown that while we sing, our amygdalas dance. So part of our brain that's connected to trauma can actually start to dance whenever we sing singing. God created us in such a way to where when we actually start to worship, even audibly sing to him, that there's even an act of healing that takes place. Even if God said, sing to me because I'm God, that's good enough. But even in the process of us rejoicing and singing out to God, God does a process of healing us in that process. And then we sing biblically rich, theologically accurate songs about this, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will continue to do. And so our singing isn't just like, hey, we don't know how else to fill the time here. It's actually to a God who's worthy of all worship. And in that process, he does a work of healing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have this past, present, future hope. We look to the cross to know that we're not being punished. We look to the cross to know that you were punished. And we look to the cross to know that you can bring beauty from ashes.